Welcome to Business Unmuted. Thanks to our sponsor, Virtue Motors, one of the UK's largest motor retailers, representing some of the world's best manufacturers of cars, vans and motorcycles. You can check out its website at virtuemotors.com. I'm Graham Robb and I've owned Recognition PR for nearly 35 years. We've got 75 clients in multiple sectors based across the UK who have between them a turnover of around £6 billion and 30,000 staff employed. So that puts us at the front line of the business community and perfectly placed to discuss the economic climate, as are my guests today on Business Unmuted. In the studio, we have Elaine Stroud, Chief Executive of Entrepreneurs Forum, a network for entrepreneurs in the northeast of England. Down the line, we have Ben Zaranko, Senior Research Economist at the Institute of Fiscal Studies. He specialises in health and social care and analysis of UK government fiscal policy and spending decisions. And down the line as well, we've got Tony Stein, who's the Chief Executive of Healthcare Management Solutions. Tony's got more than two decades of experience in the care sector and HCMS, his company, operates around 60 services around the UK. Well, thank you all for joining us. Uh, ben, first, from the Institute of Fiscal Studies, your organisation's always on the television and radio when the, the big government announcements come up. And there's one next week, a week on Thursday. What is the challenge for the government at the moment when it comes to public spending? Well, the government has been dealt quite a tricky hand. We're living through quite a turbulent year, a series of global economic shocks to gas prices, to food prices, to oil prices. And what that makes the UK is a country that imports lots of its gas, lots of its food, lots of its oil, that makes us poorer. So the government is having to grapple with this difficult shock that's hitting households, it's hitting businesses, and it's hitting public services as well. So the government is left... Uh, trying to make sure that all of its fiscal sums add up while also cushioning households and businesses through the worst of that shock, but also trying to strike the balance of making sure that looking forwards, the government's finances are in a fiscally sustainable position. And that's why they're thinking about potentially painful tax rises or spending cuts in next week's autumn statement. The, the economy seems relatively straightforward if you look at it from the, the a distance. You've got about two trillion of money, massive amount of money in the UK economy, and the government spends nearly half of it, but it doesn't raise nearly half of it in tax. What's its deficit? What's the difference between what it raises and what it spends in the next year? Well, the government's budget deficit spiked enormously during the pandemic because obviously tax receipts fell as lots of businesses weren't bringing in as much money as they were beforehand. Lots of people uh, we're no longer spending so much, which led to lower VAT receipts. And at the same time, we had things like the furlough scheme, self-employment income support scheme, and that meant that government borrowing topped more than 10% of national incomes, or more than 200 billion. Now, it was falling steadily. It was said to fall back to more like 2 or 3% of the economy. But then we were hit by this year's, you know, the gas price shock, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and so on. And so the government is now set to be borrowing quite a lot, heading right out into the middle of this decade. And I think it's that sense that borrowing isn't set to fall back, the government isn't going to start um, having debt falling as a fraction of national income. That is what led to some of the market turmoil that we might remember from September following Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng's uh, quite dramatic mini-budget. Okay, so that's where we are now. There's a big deficit to fill uh, and it can be done by tax rises or public spending cuts. What is the IFS hearing about the options the government might have to 
consider serious options that are on the table? Well, the tricky thing for the new government is that there's a set of commitments in the 2019 manifesto around not increasing any of the three big taxes. So that's income tax, that's VAT, and that's national insurance. So in theory, at least, those are off the table. You've then got a series of promises around public services. I think about things like 20,000 new police officers helping to clear the NHS backlog. Uh, that's a post-COVID one. But, you know, there's lots of things that the government has promised to do. Like, the government also know, promised to increase NHS spending, didn't it? And, 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 yeah. and defence spending. It had thresholds for that. Absolutely. So when you take all those things together, there's not actually that many options left. We're talking about freezing tax thresholds, potentially in cash terms, which what economists call fiscal drag, basically dragging more and more people into higher tax bans, potentially thinking about limiting tax relief on things like pension saving, uh, potentially looking at uh, things that might raise more money for higher earners, maybe again freezing thresholds, maybe looking at increasing the rates of capital gains tax, maybe freezing things like inheritance tax thresholds. There's all sorts of things being rumoured in the press. I'm sure most of them won't in fact go ahead. We'll have to wait until next week for the detail. But I think what's clear is that we can expect probably lots of little tax rises that will all raise a little bit, that will add up to quite a lot, combined with a squeeze on public services and the pay of public sector workers in order to try and make those budget sums add up. Is the goal of, well, obviously the goal is to make the budget sums add up, as you say, even though they won't properly add up because there'll still be a deficit. But the deficit would be within the boundaries that international finance will accept. Is that, is it possible to do that? Or, or has, has, the, has the fox got away? You know, the, the, the credibility of the government disappeared forever. Can credibility and stability be restored? Yeah, I think so. It's important to say that, you know, the public finance issue isn't the only one that matters. Clearly, we also care about things like trying to encourage economic growth or protecting households and particularly the most vulnerable households from a shock that is beyond their control. But I think what we saw in September around the mini budget and all the dramatic market response to that is that these issues around credibility are important. And that, that sense of being a credible actor is takes time to build up and you can lose it quite quickly. And I think that's why the Treasury will be quite quick to try and reassure markets and to try and, it's not just about the level of borrowing, it's also about the level of UK national debt. Is that at a sustainable level? Is it on a sustainable path? Is the UK broadly living within its means? Of course, we want to do everything we can to boost growth and to create more prosperity that can then be shared around, but the gut's got to be done carefully and within sort of constraints. Uh, and I think that's the, the delicate balancing act the Treasury is going to be trying to, to manage next month or next well, week. Inflation hurts the government as well as everyone else because it lets, uh, lets its own spending get out of uh, kilter. Uh, so Rishi Sunak has said, and I've been in the room when he said it, inflation is the number one target of his government's policy now. Uh, and if he is to tackle inflation in the way that might be needed, uh, they're going to have to put up various taxes, as you've just alluded to. The Bank of England has said today that inflation is partly driven by the fact that there are 600,000 fewer workers and the tight labour market and people retiring early has been a driver to the inflation that they face in retirement. Yes. So I think it's useful to sort of think of this as a two-stage process, if you like. The first stage of this is global shocks to supply chains, remember things like zero COVID policy in China, 
and things like that at the start of the year that were starting to lead to inflationary pressure. Then you had on top of that a gas price shock, an energy price shock, which is increased costs for businesses and the prices that households face. But that's then feeding through to the broader economy. And one thing that you know, workers reasonably do in the face of higher inflation is they ask for higher pay awards. And um, what the Bank of England are alluding to, I think, is that because we've got lots of, particularly people in their 50s and 60s who seem to have dropped out of the labour force who aren't working, who might otherwise have expected, you might have expected them to. In lots of cases, that's because of ill health. In others, it's because they've retired early. Maybe their house price has gone up enough to allow them to do that. Um, and that's meaning that there's fewer workers around. That means the unemployment rate is lower. What the labour market is running hotter or tighter, in what economists mm-hmm. might, might phrase it as. Um, and that leads to higher wage growth. And the, what the Bank of England are worried about is that what might have been a one-off temporary shock via energy prices becomes a more widespread, persistent inflationary shock. And that becomes much harder to eradicate. And that might lead to a much ex- more extended period of higher interest rate and, and things like tax rises to try and squeeze that out. So I think that they're onto something, but it's not at the root cause of what we're experiencing. Okay. Uh, ben, before we move on to our next guest, I want to ask you about something you probably won't get asked by the general <laughs> media, which is about the kind of taxes that are possibly going to be levied on the group of people that are entrepreneurial and are driving growth. So there is rumour, was I think it was the Daily Telegraph and one of the national newspapers uh, this uh, Wednesday was saying that top rate tax, rather than being reduced, would be increased, disincentivising uh, people's higher earnings and costing money of higher earners. Uh, there have been speculation about dividend tax being hit with fewer uh, incentives to be paid by dividends. Of course, people who uh, establish businesses and own businesses quite often remunerate themselves through dividends. So I suppose my question to you is, um, what is the differential diagnosis of that? Yes, it brings in revenue, but does it also stop growth? Yes, at the core of that question is that the government has to make a trade-off between trying to raise more revenue on the one hand and also trying not to discourage or overly discourage beneficial forms of entrepreneurship and economic activity. And what we had from uh, Liz Truss and Kwesi Kwarteng was a clear sense that they thought, even if it cost revenue, cutting tax rates for higher earners was the right thing to do because it might spur more business creation or more entrepreneurial activity, whatever it happened to be. Um, And now we might be swinging the other way. In the the search for revenue, the government might decide to try and look at at top earners. There's been a clear um, sense that they want to focus support on the most vulnerable and perhaps try and raise most from those with the broadest shoulders. Now, that's the, that's quite a vague statement, but what that might mean in practice is looking to try and raise more from the better off in society. Now, that might come at a cost of you know, disincentivizing um, some of the things you were talking about. Uh, but yeah, ultimately, these economic choices are difficult. They are trade-offs. You have to balance things against each other. And that's, a, at the end of the day, a political choice. Okay. Well, Ben... Very good analysis and explanation. Thank you. Stay on the line. I'll bring you in a little later. Elaine from the Entrepreneurs Forum. That point where we left it with Mm. Ben, uh, your members, more than 300 of them in the Northeast, they all own businesses. To be a member of the Entrepreneurs Forum, you have to be turning over no less than a quarter of a million pounds and many, many turn over many, many Mm. times more. What is your view and the Forum's view on some of these taxes that potentially are in the firing line? Um, I think that... 
our members just want stability. So they want to know what is the policy on tax for the government and is it going to stick? They don't want the U-turns that we saw in September because you can't plan for those U-turns and that creates uncertainty. So they understand that there's political trade-offs, like you were saying, Ben, between helping the most vulnerable and the taxes that could um, be imposed. But tell us what it is and stick to it and give us some stability as to what the future is going to look like. I mean, obviously, they want taxes which are going to benefit entrepreneurship. So lower taxes is obviously a benefit to them. But actually, more important than that is the stability, I think. There are targeted taxes that relate to investment as well. Um, there's uh, the Enterprise Investment Scheme and uh, the, 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 there's also um, the Entrepreneurs' Relief. Those taxes work to encourage people to invest in businesses, don't they? Those tax reliefs, rather. Yes, they do. And they've been very successful over the past few years since they've been in play. And we wouldn't want to see those disappear because they do incentivize people to invest in entrepreneurships, particularly in startups and higher risk ventures. And we need that finance to become available. Now, let's move on to the general economy because um, there's a lot of surveys published about what business thinks about uh, the sentiment of the economy. But you talk to business owners directly, not the managers of businesses, not the shareholders of businesses, but the owners, the entrepreneurs. What do they think about the economy in the northeast of England? That's right, and we do talk to them, and we've recently surveyed them. And what they said to me was that they are worried about the economy as a whole, there was less confidence in the government's ability to run the economy. But having said that, the majority of our members are still absolutely optimistic about their prospects for their own business in 2023. So that's saying that, yes, we know all this stuff's going on and there's a bit of uncertainty, but we've got really good business plans and we're ready to grow and we're ready to go for it. Okay, we'll come back to you in a minute because I want to hear about your conference next week, which I suppose, out of defiance, is going to be held on the same day as this Well, that wasn't It wasn't planned that the conference would be on the same day. We'll go ahead with it. Let the politicians do their announcements, but we're having our conference. And I suspect there'll be some interesting conversations over the drinks at the end of the conference. Quite right. Tony Stein, you've owned a business for years and you're an entrepreneur. What do you think about the sentiment in the current economy? I um, absolutely agree. I think um, as an entre- and I would consider myself uh, foremost uh, an entrepreneur rather than anything else. You know, we've set up several businesses over the years and employ um, a hundred plus people um, in HCMS alone. Um, I I think you've hit the nail on the head when you said that we needed um, some sort of a consistency and a, and, a, and a stability of the of the whole economy going forward, some understanding about what we're heading into. Entrepreneurs are ridiculously good at making headway when they know what the challenges are and they can get on with it. But when you start working hard against certain challenges and that changes overnight, then you've you've expended a lot of energy and got nowhere, and that's very frustrating. But the sector that I'm in, uh, particularly, is is fraught with real serious problems at the moment, and that affects the entire bit, the entire uh, country. Um, they're the same problems that we've always had in many ways, because fundamentally it's around staffing. Um, the staff shortages that we're seeing um, post Brexit, post COVID, and I'd, I'd say post COVID um, as well, specifically, and we'll come into that in a moment. Uh, are incredibly challenging. Um, you know, there are services now that have um, reduced occupancy, but we can't open the beds to to further inquiries or admissions because we simply can't recruit the staff to 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 staff the homes properly. 
Um, there's also you have a, dozens a trim... and dozens of homes around the country. Is this uniform around the country? These care homes that you operate is it is it uh, specific to one area or is it everywhere that the staffing it, issue hits? It obviously varies from place to place, but I think there's a very much a general trend now. And I mean, it's it's not just the UK. I mean, the US has got a four million. Uh, workforce gap between people unemployed and and vacancies you know uh, this is this is worldwide and i suspect there's an awful lot to do with the fact that we've lost a lot of people through the pandemic people that have gone to, to they've given up work they've retired early they've 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 made different life choices and and we now have a huge hole you know everybody talks about um, the economy and how we how we fight our way out of it and that's increased productivity and it's very hard to do when you can't you can't expand your workforce and you can't get the people to do the work that's needed um for us um in in addition to staffing which is which is as i said harder than i think i've ever known it um we've got the added problem of inflation um hitting our our, our bottom line um, and there are two distinct parts to our business, as you as you well know, that we've got the private side of the business where you can uh, you can have an influence on the fees that you charge, and then you've got the public pay part of the market where the fees are dictated to you by local authorities, and they have no money. So, so quite simply, whilst our costs are all inf- you know increasing exponentially in some cases, um, local authorities are not increasing their fees, so that it's a direct hit to our bottom line. In, uh, we've seen inflation in energy prices go crazy in in recent months i've actually seen um businesses where the the rates have increased 1400 percent for energy and i'm not that's no joke i mean that's when your bill goes from five thousand pounds to seventy thousand pounds overnight because you're off contract that's a serious blow to your business what do you think should be Uh, done about it tony well you know the government stepped in with this idea of a price cap the the inflation rate is, is still very very high until it, before the cap kicks in, but again you know there's this idea that this is now only going to be enforced until March. You know that's a ridiculous kind of time horizon for these these prices that are going to impact us long beyond March. You know we run care homes, we can't reduce the temperature, we're looking after vulnerable people. You know, it's important for us that, that we have the opportunity to, to use gas to cook. And, you know, you just can't dial back on these uh, things. Of course, so, the government hasn't said that it won't do it after March. It's just said it won't do it on a uniform basis. And if it's going to do smart incentives, uh, you know, as a running a PR firm office in the north of England, I wouldn't expect to have the same kind of support for my energy bill after March that you would running a care home. No, and to be honest with you, I fully expect that the government may well step in beyond March, but the problem is we don't know. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to plan your business if you don't know. Um, you know, it's, it's, if, you're wanting, if you're wanting to invest in buying a new business and you don't know that after March next year, you know, your, your margins are going to be protected, it's a very difficult decision for you to make. So it's, it is also it true that the government the doesn't know as well, isn't it? In, 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 if we, sometimes we can't always expect the government to do it. We know that the price of gas is now, nine, uh, sorry, oil is now $95 a barrel, and the price of gas has come down, but it could go back up again. Depends on how the war in Ukraine goes and all sorts of factors that are beyond the government's control. Absolutely. And, and that's the problem, isn't it? That I mean, we've got factors that external factors that are impacting us. And, and it's not a, it's not an easy job for the government to 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 navigate some of these changes. 
But you know, if you want if you want your business your your country to succeed and your business to succeed, you have to find a way of giving them some certainty so that they can navigate those waters. And that's the problem. I think we've had so much political change over the past couple of months. Um, that the government's entire focus has been on the issue of politics rather than on the issues yes, around certainly. managing the economy. I it's not good. I certainly subscribe to that. Ben, you've heard uh, Tony there, and I know that one of your pieces of work that you do at the Institute of Fiscal Studies is about the care sector. What have you got to say? What Does this chime with what you've been hearing through other people in the sector? It absolutely does chime. In particular, what Tony was saying about um, care homes that rely on fees from local authorities for relying on people who are, get their, their care publicly funded. Those fees have been squeezed enormously over the past well, 10 or 12 years or so. Um, and unfortunately, looking ahead, the, as the government is you know, seeking to you know, keep a lid on public spending, history teaches us that when, when times get tough, one of the areas that often gets squeezed is local government. And I think that we may well be in a situation where local authority budgets are, if not cut at the very, maybe at best, perhaps held flat. And in the face of rising demand, lots more older people, they might be being asked to roll out the new social care funding reforms. It's difficult to see how local authorities are going to be able to increase substantially the fees paid to providers. And I think that that's good. it could be a tricky couple of years for the sector. I don't know. If that chimes with what Tony's feeling, but it seems to me that, that local government and local authorities are going to be potentially on the receiving end of a, a tricky couple of years. Ben, are you hearing in your studies about any ideas that are coming forward? I know you study what the, 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 what the effects of current policy are, but what about ideas looking to the future? I know that in some continental countries, for instance, the energy price cap is applied to the first series of units of energy you use. So if I have a large house... Uh, in the domestic setting, I will get my energy price cap. Uh, and then if I have to heat the house more, then I'll pay the market rate for energy. Therefore, it's targeted at people with smaller properties. Likewise, I talked about targeting sectors when it comes to business energy price caps. Are those kind of ideas floating around in policy circles, do you think? They definitely are. I th I've seen much more on the uh, household side. So how might we better design um, the, the energy price guarantee. So when, when Liz Trust came in, one of the first things she did was a two-year price cap, right, which has the benefit of providing some of the stability and certainty that we've been talking about as being so important, which I entirely agree with, but it also meant it was enormously expensive. And one thing which it didn't do is it didn't preserve any of the incentives for households and businesses to find ways to cut back their energy yes. use. So looking at it, the German experience, they've kept much stronger incentives to reduce gas use. And what we've seen is remarkable, actually, in like heavy industry sectors. They've managed to cut back their gas use by 25% or so, and yet maintain output almost at the same level. They've found incredibly smart ways to substitute their industrial processes. And that, that's the sort of the, the power of incentives, really. And I yeah. think that what we might seek from the government is a way to preserve those incentives so that people do 
face, you know, do think carefully about how they can reduce their energy use. And that applies to businesses too, I think. Well, there's no doubt about it, Tony and Ben, that next week is a big week in terms of UK public policy. And I know that the Institute of Fiscal Studies will be very busy. I'm going to leave it there with you two and just let Lane close <laughs> by telling us about the conference that you've got next week, because it's a conference for entrepreneurs at the time the government is discussing policy. Well, what about your conference? <laughs> yeah, so our conference is uh, it's my favourite event of the year. So we bring in some amazing speakers from all around the country. So we're kicking off with Sir Ian Livingstone this year. So he's the guy that set up Games Workshop. If you remember Dungeons and Dragons, he brought that to the UK. Um, all sorts of things. Fantastic guy. And, and it gets... I think we've got five keynote speakers across the day. One of the things that is interesting this year is it comes back to what you were saying there was um, staffing is a key issue. That's the biggest issue probably, which is hindering growth for our members. So we've got a panel of some examples of brilliant people like Mike O'Brien from Opencast, Brendan Hayward from Osbit. Their companies are doing some really innovative stuff around their people to try and stand out from the crowd and be able to address that sort of employment crisis and get the numbers of bods, bums on seats that they need. So we'll be hearing from them. Well, I wish you the best luck at the conference. I'm thank sure you. it'll go well. Tony, Ben, uh, and also Elaine, thank you for joining me. Uh, next week on Business and Muted, a special edition, we're talking to one of the specialist uh, uh, partners at uh, Deloitte about their state of the state report the day before uh, the latest financial statement from the government. Thank you for joining us. See you soon.